They wanted to show, oh, did they want to show me the film? They were going to put it on a Steam Deck. They said, no one's asked for this film in decades. Why don't you, you watch it? You want to see it? And I said, yes, but I don't want to be the last person to see it. Out of the silver shadows and into the Klieg lights of Movieland comes Nitrateville Radio. This is Michael Gebert in Chicago with Nitrateville Radio, the podcast that talks to people doing cool stuff in the world of classic era films. Brought to you by Nitrateville.com, the discussion site about movies from the classic age from all around the world. Colleen Moore was one of the most liked and likable silent movie stars, and one who enjoyed a life after Hollywood, raising money for charity with her famous fantasy dollhouse and, well, enjoying a long and happy life. Joe Aransky knew her, and he helped save some of her films. I'll talk with him about her in this episode. I'll also talk with film preservationist Eric Grayson about reconstructing another Colleen Moore film, Little Orphan Annie. In the meantime, stay on your twinkle toes by subscribing to Nitrateville Radio at iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher so you never miss an episode. Joe Aransky is one of the good guys who knows everybody and makes good things happen. He's the only person I know of who managed to meet Deanna Durbin in France after she left all of Hollywood far behind. A senior film librarian at the New York Public Library, he's contributed to countless film restoration projects. But many of his favorites involve Colleen Moore, who he knew before she died in 1988. Joe came to Chicago earlier this year for a screening at Nitrateville Radio's favorite local theater, The Music Box, of Moore's 1927 Her Wild Oat, which he found and helped preserve. It's a fun, unpretentious programmer about a girl who runs a lunch wagon and decides to give herself a vacation at a fancy resort, where, as tends to happen in movies like this, she winds off being passed off as society before winning her bow. The next day, we met for a lunch of the German food Joe loves at a restaurant called The Radler to talk about the film and its star. So we're here at The Radler, awaiting German food. Yay. And Joe is in town for a screening of Her Wild Oat, which Joe found in Czechoslovakia. So let's start off. Tell us about uh, Her Wild Oat with Colleen Moore and about your work on Colleen Moore's films in general. Okay, uh, Her Wild Oat's a rather special film in that it was right after Colleen had had a six-month strike against her studio for the payment of $50,000 she was owed. Uh, She walked out when her husband walked out in May of 1927. She was off the screen for six months, and even though she was off the screen for six months, she still managed to be the top worldwide box office attraction, which I think is fantastic. 
I mean, very few people pull this. And it was the second year she was the, the top worldwide box office attraction. So they solved the problem with the, with the contract the middle of October. The last week of October, they start principal photography on her wild oat. And her wild oat basically was being shot from the last week of October to the second week of November, when normally six to eight weeks were used for shooting a film. And it's very special. They didn't have time to build any of their sets. Actually, they built they built two sets, two different bedrooms. The so rest of the, the two the two hotel rooms. Exactly. Uh, the poor the poor room with just a fan and the suite. Okay. But the rest of everything else was done on location. They didn't have time, and with the short shooting schedule, they were all over East Los Angeles, which at that time was Chinatown, doubling for New York City, and also at the Hotel Del Coronado, and even the Beverly Hills Golf Course, which doubled as the uh, airfield. And the plane did crash, by the way. No, he wasn't paying attention. He was looking at Colleen inside the plane and he tipped the plane over so they had to redo that one little scene and they didn't want to pay the $700 damages but they were contractually obliged to do so okay and it, the film came out it opened in Chicago Christmas Eve the rest of the major locations like New York on Christmas Day and it was a phenomenal hit I mean people wanted to see Colleen especially in this kind of a film you know, where she's playing a working-class girl who has a lunch wagon, has very low expectations in life, and gets her Cinderella-type ending at the end of the film. Well, it's interesting talking about it being produced so fast, because I think that's actually to the film's benefit. It kind of has a breezy quality to it that if it were labored over more, it wouldn't have. Well, that was also true. The director of this film was Marshall Nealon who was very instrumental with Colleen earlier in her life back in 1920. And he had pulled her out of Christie comedies and put her in his company. And she did films like The Lotus Eater, uh, Dinty. And it was a real push up the ladder from being just another leading lady to on her way to stardom. And he had just gone through bankruptcy with his own studio, Marshall Nealon tended to like to give out a quip, as Colin would say. He would rather say, have a quip that was repeated all over town than make a good film. One of his best was during the uh, Arbuckle scandal. He was notorious for looking for Adolf Zucker and saying, I hear they're investigating everyone from A to Z. And he would point at Zucker <laughs> because uh, the Wallace Reed scandal, Fatty Arbuckle scandal, all took place under the Paramount banner. Uh, the other great one he did, which still repeated, is an empty cab drove up to MGM today and out walked Louis B. Mayer. Right. <laughs> but the film itself was very important because it has that breezy quality, and Colleen actually admitted that they kept one little sequence from an original story, and basically Marshall Nealon made up the story as they were shooting it. It wasn't on a scenario, it was being done as they, being developed as they were shooting the film. And she said he had a very great quality for timing. He could shoot the scenes. Now, no one else could put this together except Marshall Nealon because he knew what he shot and how it would fit together. 
which was a pretty good guarantee that he wouldn't be fired. Right. And it was the first of a three-picture deal. He was paid $50,000, which he desperately needed, but Marshall Deal, being a great Irishman, decided that he would blow more than 50000 for presents for the cast and crew at the rap party. Uh. <laughs> and Colleen said, you know, she used to sh- shrug her shoulders and basically say, what can you do? That's Mickey. Yeah. Well, and she's one of those stars who ended her life quite wealthy. Uh, not one of the ones more who, than quite wealthy. <laughs> not one of the ones who uh, had a uh, a sad end after the uh, studio payments went away. But he didn't feel sorry when he when he could no longer work in the business after 1938. He supported himself for 20 years as a cab driver. And when people would try to either give him money or say how terrible this was, um, he would really go forth and basically say, I had a great time spending my money. Don't feel sorry for me. (laughs) And she stayed friendly. The great thing with Colleen Moore, from my point of view, is the fact that Colleen supported all of her friends. And when you had an actor or an actress who wasn't having a good period in their career, Colleen would put put them into one of her films. Marshall Neal is a good example, but also you have people repeating constantly in her films. Yeah, Burl Mercer, uh, Catherine McGuire, Antonio Moreno, Kate Price, I think, is eight times in her films. I mean, you know, these people repeated over and over because they would be in a, a hit film. It would give them another contract. If not at that studio, another studio would pick them up. And she was, once you were her friend, you really had to do something terrible to lose that friendship. I had it for 18 years, and I was very blessed. So, well, let's talk a little bit about her stardom. Now, she's somebody, you know, her visually, the striking thing about her, besides, you know, she has a cute face, kind of a girl-next-door quality, uh, but it's in particular the haircut, the bangs, which now we would say she looks like Louise Brooks, which, of course, is a total perversion of history in that Brooks stole it from her. And, you know, it's usually referred to her haircut as a Dutch boy's haircut. She would disagree with you because when they cut the hair uh, for Flaming Youth, they thought of it as a Japanese girl's hairdo. Really? Because there was such a large Japanese population in Southern California. And that was great. Um, And basically it evolved. If you look at the early haircut, it's fluffed out at the sides. It's not straight to the head. Then in her wild oat, you have her first slick down as a Dutch boy haircut. And when she first goes to the Hotel Del Coronado, the resort, it's fluffed out like it had been back in 23. And it looks quite different. But as Colleen said, it was a very easy haircut to maintain. All she had to do was have Purse Westmore, the uh, makeup pant, trim trim the, uh, the bangs, and she was ready to go. In fact, in her wild oat, you have a very rare opportunity to see a makeup man in the 1920s applying makeup properly. In the sequence where she's pretending to be a duchess and he puts on false eyelashes on her. He paints a cupid bow mouth on her. He basically covers her face with so much makeup that you cannot see a single pore. But she looks like an enameled china doll. But she looks beautiful. She also wears a blonde wig which her public did not like at all. But she did it three times. She obviously like doing this in Twinkle Toes, 
in her Wild Oat, and also in Footlights and Fools, her last film for First National Pictures. Well, let's talk about her appeal for a minute. What do you think, you know, one of the biggest stars of the 20s started out, like you say, she kind of tended to play, you know, the daughter of an Ernest Torrance type or something early on, but moves into stardom by about what point? She... She was trying to break into stardom all through 1922, and Sam Goldwyn really gave her some... He and Rupert Hughes really tried to give her, give her stardom, put, a, put her in three great films, Come On Over, Broken Chains, and Wallflower. And these films, she's not billed above the title, but it's a starring role. And they were very successful, but she didn't have the push because in many respects, she looked like Madge Bellamy. She was a tall lady with curly hair who looked like the girl next door. She was, Colleen was never, I think she's beautiful, but I have to admit, she's not a great beauty. She's sort of a plain character. Hollywood plain, which of course is quite beautiful in real life. Oh yeah, and she was a, she was a wonderful human being. Um, people who knew her at the time, I remember, uh, Bessie Love, when I saw her over in London, said, you know, we used to go to the parties and Ruth Rowland and Colleen Moore would be in the corner talking back and forth and we thought it was great gossip. We'd listen in and what was it? They're talking about corner lots on Wilshire Boulevard while the rest of us are talking about our boyfriends <laughs> and what color looks best on us. But again, Colleen was one of the unusual ones. She wasn't supporting a family. Uh, she was very fortunate that she came from Middle upper middle class folk, her uncle Walter Howie, who was the prototype for the editor in the play and the movie The Front Page, was the person who got her into films because he managed to get several of the D.W. Griffith films through the censors in Chicago, which at that time was really tough, especially Birth of a Nation. And basically, as Colleen would say, very, in a very soft voice, I was a payoff. <laughs> D.W. Griffith wanted to give him a present, and Howie said, I have a niece. And Griffith said, not a niece. <laughs> but she got a six-month contract. She made three films for the company. Things were okay, not great. And she could have disappeared immediately at that point. But Colleen had stick-to-itiveness, and we were doing research, and the file still exists from Triangle uh, uh, Fine Arts of her going to the stage manager after Griffith has gone to make Hearts of the World in Europe and she's looking for jobs and finally she gets one through a referral because someone knew her aunt, uh, Walter Howie's uh, wife called Liberty, give me liberty or give me death. <laughs> Colleen came from a theatrical family. Yeah. <laughs> but it worked and she made Little Orphan Annie and then the old Hoosier Schoolmaster, both by James Whitcomb Riley, which were the last two features ever completed by the Sealy Polyscope Company. Hmm. Parenthetically, have you ever seen the Sealy Polyscope building that survives here? I haven't, no. It's not far from my house. It's, it's an apartment building now, but over the entrance, you've got the carved S oh. in stone, and there was a used car lot, and that was basically where, you know, was at least part of the the lot, you know, for the production there. Or I think they probably had like a studio building with glass 
bites or something. I mean, I have I have seen the zoo in Los Angeles, which yeah. is now a park, and not much. There's really not much of it there, but it is interesting to go out there and see how large it was. Yeah, it's it's not that there's anything <clears throat> really to see, but it's just kind of nice to know that, yes. that it survives there, and that's kind of cool. And again, people forget that Seelig was one of the major studios. I was recently going through some correspondence of Colonel Seelig selling uh, the rights to Joseph Skank, a big producer at First National, for the film Garden of Allah. I never knew there was a 1916 Seelig production, 10 reels of the Garden of Allah that had been made. And unfortunately, in the contract, it says all prints and the negative have been destroyed except for one viewing copy. But that's what they used to do. So, <clears throat> what do you think was the, the key to Colleen Moore's stardom? I mean, I think she's one of those very effervescent kind of, well, you say she's tall, but I always think of her as, you know, one of those little pixies that silent film produced, like Pickford and other people who's just got, or Clara Bow, more energy than, you know, you know what to do with. Well, Colleen, I, I, I think I would disagree there because Colleen was taller. The, the ideal of beauty at the time was five feet tall, lots of curls, and curvaceous body and no cheekbones. Colleen had cheeks like chickmunks. Um, <laughs> she's taller than most, and if you'll notice in a lot of the films, she unfortunately is uh, wearing flats because the leading men were that short. Cullen Landis in particular stands out. I think her appeal was that she wasn't threatening to ladies. She was, for all intents and purposes, she could be made up to look very pretty, but she's never a great beauty the way that a Corrine Griffith is a great beauty, or later on, a Hedy Lamar. She is average, so that she's not a threat to the female population, which is usually kiss of death for some stars. The men saw her as sort of the, the girl next door, or sort of the kid's sister. So again, no threat. But when she comes out in, in Flaming Youth, which I hate to go against her autobiography and her memories. I've looked at the contracts. She, when she signed with First National Pictures in 1923, it was to make first Flaming Youth, then The Huntress. As it turned out, they did it the other way around. And The Huntress was, unfortunately, not a successful film, where she played an Indian girl who was born white, but who, who tries to get a husband the Indian way by kidnapping him. <laughs> uh, but you watch her in Flaming Youth, and it was almost as if she let all the shackles down. Not only does she cut her hair, but she's engaged you know, in premarital sex, mad kissing, uh, going off with some of their friends on a yacht to the South Seas for every kind of abuse. And yet, she, she remains the good girl even though she's experimenting with smoking, drinking, etc. And basically, I think that was the saving grace. With a Clara Bow, you knew she'd go all the way. Right. And Alice White definitely was going to go all the way. But with Colleen Moore, you knew that there was a limit as to how far she could go, and she would go no further. And she was immediately accepted by especially the college-age uh, undergraduates. I have a wonderful photo of her going to Wesleyan and also to Bryn Mawr, and she's being surrounded by flappers. 
by the way, let's just explain what a flapper is. <laughs> a flapper is a girl who goes around wearing rubber galoshes that they used to put over their shoes, and instead of fastening the clasp, the sixth clasp that would be on it, they would leave it open and it would make this sort of wah-wah sound as you walked, and that was, here come the flappers. It just meant that you were not following convention. So it's the Ugg boots of its day. You better believe it. <laughs> um, and I think we'll, we'll now eat. Let's eat. <laughs> Well, let's talk about how the uh, about saving these films. You found her wild oat in Czechoslovakia. I yes. Uh, basically, before we get into that, we should sort of talk about the studios and the studios with the prints. The studios were convinced that the prints were a very were a, they were not important. What was important were the rights and remake rights for future productions. So that basically at the end of a run, let's say 18 months to two years, they would go through the different vaults and they would keep maybe one or two prints plus a negative um, and they would destroy everything else. They would, they would melt it down for the silver content, which was about between 24 to $64 depending upon the length of the film. That's very little, but they wanted to get back that money as well, but also remove it from the, uh, the public. Because if it was remade, and that was something that was they followed religiously, was to destroy any earlier version so you could never say, well, the film is good, but back in 1916 when they made it the first time, it was so much better than <laughs> someone getting hold of a print and showing it. So they really were notorious. And I've gone through contracts where it says that a script, a continuity, one fine grain of the film have been preserved that the negative and all of the other prints have been destroyed. And that was really so that you could see what was in the film and not duplicate any of the scenes. A classic example would be The Barker, which was made at First National in 28, and then remade as Hoopla at Fox in 1933 with Clara Bow. They literally watched the film, but they didn't care what it was like. And when they sold the rights to, Warner Brothers sold the rights to Fox, they didn't have enough money to waste on all new prints, so they took all the bits and pieces of the old print, of uh, old negative, and sewed it together, printed on this sewn-together piece of film, and that's what survived, which has recently been restored at the UCLA archive, and they also were able to put the discs back. But occasionally you do see marks where, usually during close-up, it's amazing, where the film was literally sewn together to transfer it from the negative onto this release, this copy print. Mm. But I'm getting away from this. And again, it was studio neglect, but it was a benign neglect. They really didn't say, let's burn all of our films. They did that at some of the studios where they had a war picture. They, the explosions weren't big enough at Universal. They would, you know, Carl Lemley Jr. would say, let's get some of those old nitrates out here and let's put them on the, on the set and you watch it uh, all quiet on the Western Front. If people really were going through these explosions, everybody would have been dead. They are really <laughs> spectacular. They also let things stay in, in vaults far too long. Nitrate deteriorates either goes into, uh, it can explode, it can turn into red dust, it can turn into goo. 
and it, it's not that stable. They hoped originally that it would last a hundred years, but we discovered that sometimes it does hold up for a hundred years, and sometimes it just doesn't. And over the decades, you know, silent films after talkies came in were considered useless. What would you want a silent film for? It's never going to come back. Boy, were they wrong. But you have places that did hold on to these films for various and sundry reasons. Uh, for instance, in the Czech Republic, her wild oat was held by was held by the government because it was shown to prospective emigrants from the Czech Republic to the United States to show this is what you're going to come across when you go to the U.S. Not the world of Cecil B. DeMille, of gold bathtubs and gorgeous gowns and thousands of servants. This was to give them sort of a reality check before they left. And that's why this particular film was in an archive and why it was saved initially. That's fascinating, because one of the things that's really fun about the movie is she runs this lunch wagon, and you get a very vivid picture of what that kind of business was like in 1920. It's, you know, especially now that we have such a food truck craze in major cities, you know, the more things change, the more they stay the same, and they're jockeying for position for their trucks each morning, just like they do now, and people are just sort of lined up on stools, uh, which allows a gag where the, uh, the truck takes off uh, and there the diners are all left holding their coffee cups but it uh, you know you get this you get a very vivid picture of, of what a business like that is like including the 12 hour day which I assume is what they wanted to show the Czech immigrants but even then it, I have to think that probably looked pretty good to some of them oh I'm sure it did and also one of the great things with this film is it also shows not only hand pulling these these wagons to your location but all the things that you had to do. You had to pump up to get air pressure for your water to run. There was Iceman coming to keep things cold. You know, the dishes that had to be washed. All of the different aspects and are shown there. And my personal favorite gag, because that's as far as I got to watch the film initially, when I found it in, in Czechoslovakia, was the gag where she is giving soup to the trolley car conductors. And there are five of them lined up. She has a plunger, and she puts soup in each one. The last one says, I don't want soup today, and she uses the plunger to pull it up out of the bowl. <laughs> the film, when I, I first saw it, was not, in, was not in great condition. It had been improperly stored on cores. The tapes had broken. It was crushed. It was at bad angles, and I didn't want you know, they wanted to show, oh, did they want to show me the film? They were going to put it on a steam deck. They said, no one's asked for this film in decades. Why don't you, you watch it? You want to see it? And I said, yes, but I don't want to be the last person to see it. I was hoping I could get it preserved quicker than we did, but unfortunately it did take um, 15 years from the time I saw it until we actually were able to get the film repatriated and preserved. So, yeah, you first saw it in, I think you said, 1985? That's right. And... Fortunately, well, fortunately and unfortunately, this is where tragedy does have a happy ending. When the World Trade Center was attacked in New York, September 11th, 2001, a friend of mine who was a documentary filmmaker was in Prague. And basically, he was stuck there because there were no flights coming back to the U.S. And he called me on the phone and he said, I'm stuck here. 
is there anything you want checked in the, the archive? And I said, check on the status of her wild oat. Did they do what I asked, which was put it on metal reels, tighten it up, and sure enough, they did. And it took out most of the crinkling and most of the problems with the print. It also turned out that it was a German Aga film print from 1928, which only had 2% shrinkage, which is really remarkable. And we were able to get it repatriated, and after sort of nice talking with the Academy, because Colleen was one of the founders of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, uh, that was the question no one asked me last night. I was oh. very, I was waiting on the title cards that say, you know, it has the initials of the Academy, and it says 2006. And usually that's the big question is, what does that mean? You know. Oh, well, I knew what it meant. So well, I, I know you ask. did, but, you know, <laughs> usually there's someone, you know, perplexed. Yeah. Uh, but basically we were able to get it over here, and Joe Linder, Mike Kogoleski, and the guys over at uh, Triage Film did a phenomenal job. Because one of the real problems with old films is running it through to copy it. Because the sprocket holes give, and if you're running it at any speed whatsoever, this is where it's going to be shredded. And originally we decided it was only going to be one side replacing all the sprocket holes and reinforcing them. But the film looked so good that they decided to double the budget and do the other side. So we went from 24,000 to 56,000 just for sprocket hole restoration. And you will notice that where the end of each reels are, there's a little bit of surface where some, what appears to be a dirty surface for maybe three or four seconds. That was because all of the leader for the heads and tails were gone from the print. Well, let's talk about uh, Colleen Moore's work in general. It sounds like you're working on several restoration projects. What's, um, what exists and what's, what's being preserved? About a third of, of her output of 61 films exists in one form or another currently. Not necessarily in the best shape. However, uh, thanks to Colleen herself in a conversation she repeated to me in the 80s, she had mentioned she had talked with Antonio Moreno at her place El Ranchito in Templeton, California, and that he mentioned that in the early 1930s, Mussolini wanted him to take over Italian film production, and he brought over quite a few First National pictures to show what late silent part talkies and early talkies looked like. And he remembered he had left them in some museum or archive, but he didn't know which. <laughs> when Colleen told me this, I wrote a letter, sort of a generic letter, had the foreign language department of the New York Public Library properly translated and grammatically corrected for Italian, and I sent off 249 copies to every archive, every museum that was in existence at the time, and fortunately I heard back from the from the Milan Film Archives, the Cinematheque there. They had two films, and that was Why Be Good and Synthetic Sin. Now, they had the films. Um, again, I worked with all the usual suspects. I went to Warner Brothers. I went to all of the Western Hemisphere archives. 
Nobody wanted to deal with the Italians. They said they're crazy. <laughs> they also said that about you know anything that was in the Soviet bloc that you know they would demand everything and then with, withhold it at the last minute. But we fortunately there was a new head of preservation over at Warner Brothers, Ned Price, who basically made the statement, which I saw, that Warner's would go after any First National or Warner Brother title in nitrate that they didn't have in their archive. And we turned Ned loose on this. And fortunately we were the first one we did was Why Be Good? because we had the sound discs that went with it. Ron Hutchinson of the Vita, Vitaphone Project had discovered all of the discs, and in New York City at a screening of Vitaphone Shorts, he announced this. And he said, unfortunately, we don't have the film, and from the back of the room, I called back and I said, I know where it is, and that started the process of getting that film started. It did take quite a few years, of negotiations between archives, and there's nothing like dealing with a foreign archive. Everyone <laughs> wants the upper hand. But we so far we have restored not only Colleen's two fil last two silence, Why Be Good and Synthetic Sin, we have also just finished, nearly finished, work on Showgirl, Alice White's feature film by Alfred Centel that made her into a star, which also has the Vitaphone discs. Uh, so but you had to find the pieces when the Italians made it, they cut the musical numbers out. We found those at I, the Netherlands Film Archive, because we wanted to make it as complete a film as possible. And with Colleen's work, it's anytime we, you know, I even hear of something being done or something being found, I'm there on the spot. For instance, right now, the Library of Congress is working on her first a feature film that was a comedy for the Christie brothers, So Long Letty, based on Charlotte Greenwood's musical uh, play on Broadway of 1916. I got a call from Larry Smith of the archive saying he found some 35 millimeter trims, bits and pieces from the feature. Did I know if there were any prints because he couldn't locate any? I did because I had been involved on a restoration seven years before of the, code, the only known codoscope that survived of that film. Uh, Library of Congress wanted to recopy this at 4K high definition, and eventually that will be finished. And again, there's several others that I cannot discuss because we're in negotiations and I can't say, but all I can say is there's at least two more films that currently were in negotiation to try to get repatriated here and preserved over in the States. Now, one of her famous films, uh, Alice Cinders, is that, I think that only survives in a Kodoscope version, doesn't it? It's her, Alice Cinders is a very strange, it's the only one of Colleen's first national features from 1922 to 1930 that is in the public domain officially, because originally when the film was made, the uh, William Councilman and Mr. Plum, who were the cartoonists, signed a seven-year contract with First National where they could make the film, they could remake it in seven years, but they had to pay an additional $15,000, which First National Warner Brothers never did, so it went out of copyright in the 1950s. It only exists in the Kodoscope version, uh, unfortunately, which means that they would trim 
the equivalent of one or two reels out of the picture. And in the case of Ella Cinders, they got rid of a dream sequence before she goes to the movie ball, and she imagines herself as the lady of the manor with a feathered hairdress, long gown, and her uh, evil stepmother is a maid, and she pulls her the, the evil stepmother through the house, puts her in a dog house, giant doghouse that's in the dining room. <laughs> uh, a, a delightful sequence, which I'm so sorry doesn't exist. It hasn't been found anywhere else yet. Okay. which is really a shame. But you are working on, you said, Orchids and Ermine. Is that... Yes. You can talk about that. Uh, another one of her films, Alfred Santel's Orchid and Ermine, which was shot in New York City in the summer, in the rain, the only major film set in New York in the, that was ever done in the rain, <laughs> because it's just happened to start raining, and they had six straight weeks of it, so it's a unique film. Well, At least they weren't renting cattle, like Red River. Well, they, they had set up all these elaborate things where cameramen were in garbage cans, in mailboxes. <laughs> on the other rain cups, no one paid the, 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 the crew any attention whatsoever. They just wanted to, to get where they wanted, as dry as they could be. This film existed, we thought, was complete, because it was in 35, it was there. But what it seems to be is that the all the surviving material came from prints that survived after being, had, having seen, I'm sorry, cut for censors. Okay. Because the, we have another print that we were looking at. Uh, I was fortunately uh, able to do this with the staff over at UCLA and with Ned Price from Warner Brothers. And as we're watching, I'm saying, well, this five-minute sequence with Jed Prouty and Emily Fitzroy doesn't exist at all. It was basically about a husband um, talking to his mistress, then to his wife, and his wife saying, you better be home or else you'll be out of a job and I'll be getting a divorce. But basically, all the trims seem to be slightly salacious material, so we, it's a pretty good idea that it was the print that we're looking at, which has been in this country for 10 years, literally is not the same. It, it has more material in it. For instance, this was the film debut of... Mickey Rooney, and if you look at the prints that survive, Mickey Rooney is on is a cigar smoking, nasty little businessman, and he has about two and a half minutes of, of screen time. In the other print, he has five minutes of screen time, and that's what happens with a lot of prints. You might say that they're foreign language prints, so it might be cut differently, but this one's pretty clear that all the scenes that were cut were slightly salacious for its time. And Pennsylvania had more censors than any other state in the Union. <laughs> we I was thinking about that during Her Wild Oat, actually, is that I guess we were watching the European version, by definition. So the whatever America saw would have been ever so slightly different. I can't imagine it was... Oh, actually it was. There's a whole sequence that's missing from the foreign print that was in the American print. Oh. When yeah. Colleen, as the poor girl has to leave her hotel. They had a very elaborate sequence that instead of just walking out, she has to disguise herself to disappear. <laughs> so they have a very swastik um, chambermaid who's probably a size 32, and she they exchange clothes, and Colleen is seen doing her hair up with a top knot 
and stuffing pillows into her waist, <laughs> into her chest. And this was obviously very funny in America, <clears throat> but in especially Central Europe, most women who were 26 to 30 were considered early matrons. And during your childbearing years, you put on weight and you kept it on. And this obviously wasn't funny and they couldn't see any reason for keeping it in the print. <laughs> and according to the edge code on the film, there was never anything cut out between the scene before and the scene after. So we know that was never in that European print. All right, so Colleen Moore, one of the stars who, I guess you'd say, proved she could do sound and then chose not to. I mean, to me, it's always interesting. There are the stars who just basically didn't get past 1929. But then there's another generation that seemed to work till about 34, maybe, and then we're just maybe tired of it a bit. Mary Pickford pretty much is done at that around the same time. Well, um, that, well that is true. I mean, Colleen had always planned to end her career. She almost ended it before she made her wild oat. She wanted to be a star for five years and then do other things. After the contract negotiations, she goes back <coughs> and she makes <coughs> excuse me, films up till 1929 for First National Pictures. She made two talkies, Smiling Irish Eyes and Footlight Fools, for which the visual elements are gone, but I do have the soundtracks for those two films. She has a very good speaking voice. Um, if I'm to believe, she has a good singing voice. I remember Colleen's singing voice. It wasn't that good. Uh, <laughs> but she planned on retiring and doing other things. Unfortunately, by 1932, um, the word had gotten out that she hadn't made it in talkies, and it bothered her, even though Footlight and Fools was the number one performance for December 1929. Photoplay gave it the, its award. So she... Did a, uh, she went out on the, uh, the national tour of the Church Mouse that Ruth Gordon did on Broadway, and she went to Hollywood, and at the Alcazar Theater, she started the play, and between the first and second act, Irving Thalberg and Louis Mayer came into her dressing room and signed her to a contract. She was pleased. She said later, I should have never signed it. And originally, she was all set to be rediscovered as a Depression-era leading lady. In fact, the film she was supposed to debut with was a big hit, but not with Colleen in it, because the film was Red-Headed Woman, uh. and her grandmother, a month before they were to start principal photography while they were doing costume sets and everything else, read the script and found out that Colleen uh, slept her way to the top and never paid for the paid the price. And her good Catholic Irish grandmother said, you can't do that. And Colleen was in, a, was in a real dilemma. Does she go back to a studio that's just signed her and say, sorry folks, you put all this money and effort into this. I can't do it because my granny doesn't like it. Which, which is what she did. It did uh, endear her to the powers of MGM. Yeah. <laughs> they immediately loaned her out to make Power and the Glory, which she always thought was one of her best films. It's a very powerful drama, and she plays a very interesting character who, as an old woman, is really nasty and sarcastic. 
and her voice is good, and she made a few films. And the Scarlet Letter. Well, that's the one she said she wished she had never made. It was an independent produced version. It was, it, it was, it was, it was a cheapie. Colleen had promised God when she broke her neck making the desert flower that she would raise a million dollars for children's hospitals. And after doing a few other films, success at any price in the social register, she was ready to start this next uh, part of her life. But she assumed that she would have to pay for transportation, insurance, guards for her dollhouse to appear in different uh, department stores around the country during the height of the depression. What she didn't realize, there was such a thing called corporate sponsorship even back then. (laughs) So she made the film, packed it with friends who needed a break. Betty Blythe is in it, but most importantly, Alan Hale, and it's his performance here that gets him a contract at Warner Brothers for the next 20 years. She also chose Robert G. Vignola, who was a friend who was on Hard Times. And basically, Colleen was very cute about the, the the subject of this particular photo play. She said, unlike Lillian Gish, I had absolutely no interest in the character of Hester Prim. She said, if it was me, I would have gone to the top of the steeple when everyone was in the courtyard and I would have said, he did it! He did it! <laughs> she wasn't going to keep quiet, which does sound like Holly. But it was... It really started the next aspect of her life because she toured with the dollhouse from the early 30s all the way through the beginning of World War II. Up to 1940, it was for different children's hospitals. 40 to 42, it was for English war relief. Then it was for, uh, to aid uh, servicemen, you know, for cigarettes and other necessities of the different armed forces. It was quite a project, and she would indeed travel to the different locations with the dollhouse, which eventually, in 1949, came to the, the Science Museum in Chicago, and she eventually deeded it over to the museum in, during the bicentennial year of 1976. So she had a long and happy life after movies. Uh, many children and grandchildren, uh, she, as, we had, as we saw a few attending the movie last night. Yes, as she said, the best thing that ever happened to her was when the dollhouse came to Chicago and she met her future husband, Horace B. Hargrave Sr. And she basically got not only a husband, but a ready-made family, uh, her okay. son and her daughter. And basically, as she said, my big honeymoon was I was taken over to Riverside Park where we, where we rode the... Uh, uh, I'm not sure. I'm, I'm trying to think of what you call it. Um, uh, not the Ferris wheel. Oh, uh, Riverview. Ro- ro- Riverview. Riverview. Ro- roller coaster. Yeah, and she which got she kept just up the street, not far away. It was oh, okay. back in the day. Long gone. But yeah, Riverview Park. Rode the roller coaster. Okay. And basically, her family became her life. And Chicago became the hub of her universe, unfortunately, until uh, Hargrave died in 1968. And it was... And again, you know, she, she was, during his last illness, that's when she began working on her memoirs, which became published as Silent Star, which was really the first of all of the Hollywood star autobiographies that tells the truth. Hmm. Usually it's, I went into pictures, I only had great experiences, 
I made a lot of money and I'm still happy. Well, Colleen had was much more pragmatic about her life, and you know, even down to talking about her first husband, who was a, a chronic alcoholic, and he was the producer of her films. But what you have to go through, she didn't hide the blemishes. She was proud of her life, and she lived many different varied venues, and all of them were successful one way or another. Indianapolis-based Eric Grayson is another one of the good guys, and he too has been hard at work on saving a Colleen Moore film, her earliest surviving feature, Little Orphaned Annie, from 1918. I talked with him about that, and about how even a place far from Hollywood like Indiana can produce work for a film restorer and preservationist. Little Orphaned Annie is based on a James Whitcomb Riley poem, and also partly on his uh, prose piece, which is called Where is Mary Alice Smith? And, uh, yeah, the comic strip came around uh, a little bit later, and the comic strip is called Little Orphan Annie, with spelled right, and the poem is Little Orphan Annie, and they're actually two different things. It is a, a little musing film about uh, an orphan who comes to live with a family and... Uh, sees goblins and all kinds of odd little things uh, that punish uh, errant little boys and girls who don't behave and don't say their prayers. Uh, it's a fantasy film. It's also Colleen Moore's first surviving starring vehicle. It's kind of a bucolic comedy romance, which was very common at the time. But it's also a fantasy, and thus a very early example of a special effects picture. It's very heavily a special effects picture. The director of photography is Charles Stumar, uh, who did all the effects on it, and the effects are just amazing. There's lap dissolves, there's uh, fade-ins, fade-outs with uh, monsters coming in and out. Uh, there are very elaborate costumes. Uh, there are track shots. Uh, there are moving camera shots. This is very unusual for 1918. Uh, Charles Stumar was... Uh, was the director of photography for Universal for several years. He died in a plane accident in the early 30s, in the mid-30s, but uh, he's probably best remembered today as the director of photography for The Mummy. So the famous line from the poem is, the goblins will get you if you don't watch out. How do they do the goblins in this film? Uh, there are puppets, there are makeup, uh, there are uh, little people in costumes, uh, there are wire shots, uh, just, uh, you name it, it's probably in there in some way. Uh, uh, I, I have seldom seen a movie with as many effects that is this early. Uh, I mean, I suppose you could talk about some of the Milliers films, but, um, some of those effects are pretty crude. The effects here are very smooth, they're very believable. 
uh, it's this film is technically advanced from most stuff that you'd see uh, uh, in the time. Well, and those are really cinematic effects done in the camera. Uh, Melier's effects are mostly theatrical effects. And, and they're not integrated into a plot, really. Uh, I, I know I'm sounding like I'm kind of down on Melies, but I'm not. I, I love the films. Uh, but yeah, th these are. This is this is more of a film that uh, uh, feels like it's maybe a 1925 movie instead of a 1918 film. It 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 has a feel of much later than it actually is. Yeah. Now it's a film that's been around for a while in the public domain film market. But your version really is a reconstruction that's longer and works better than what's been out there. Yeah, this movie was a mess. Um, what happened years ago, somebody messed up the original negative of this, and they cut it into tinting order. And that meant that all the reds were together, all the greens were together, all the blues were together, all that stuff. And then they were intended to be then split apart, and all the tinting was uh, to, to go for shot for shot, and uh, it would be reassembled at the exchange. But they didn't do that. Uh, they didn't undo the, the tinting order for the negative. So when they made the 16-millimeter prints, which weren't tinted anyway, it was all in the tinting order for the 35-millimeter. The film didn't make sense. It was out of order. Um, and then people uh, were, were taking shots out of it. Uh, it was very heavily censored. There are some scenes where uh, Annie's Uncle Tom's beats her and things like that, and those were actually taken out of several of the 16-millimeter prints. Uh, and then some of the um, some of the more monstery stuff in the first reel was actually censored too. So you got some of the the fantasy sequences were were watered down, and the whole movie ended up not making a whole lot of sense. So how did you put it back together? It was, first of all, uh, going through the 35-millimeter that was at Library of Congress that was melting basically in front of us. It was just about shot when, uh, when we got to it, but we were able to get some of a tint record off of it and also to get an idea of what the continuity was. Um, and we used about five or six minutes of the 35-millimeter the in the final restoration, so there is, there is some of the 35 in there, but... A lot of it just was too far gone to use. Anyway, the uh, uh, what we did then was use that as a guide, and also knowing the poem and knowing the prose piece, you could say, okay, well, this is obviously not where it should be. And so I moved a lot of shots around and said, okay, well, this should be here, and this should be here, and this should be here. Suddenly the movie started to make sense, which was pretty amazing. I think the fact that it was so heavily tinted and toned was an advantage because it helped you minimize the audience's awareness that you were jumping from one source to the next. Yeah, uh, there were five different prints that I used in this, uh, and they had all counseled me saying, okay, well, you know, don't cut in the middle of a shot and, and uh, try, to, to cover, uh, try to cover all the, the edits that you make so that uh, there's no cropping and all this stuff. And, and I realized about 10 minutes into the movie that uh, there was no way I was going to be able to do that because you'd get two shots in the movie and you'd say, well, this doesn't fit and this isn't going to work. And it was basically, let's get this complete and let's get this to, to look as well as I can possibly make it look. And then, uh, yeah, the tints cover a lot of the sins of of the uh, 
the, the editing that I had to do. You're not seeing the whole grade of the film change. You're seeing the tint say, okay, well, this is still yellow, this is still yellow, okay, cut, and it's still yellow, okay. I understand how that works now. Well, let's back up here and ask, why did you want to spend so much time saving this film in particular? I, I can't answer that question because I think that anybody who does this kind of work must have some sort of mental deficiency. Um, (laughs) It's absolutely crazy. And I I worked out how much money that I made on it off off the Kickstarter. And it actually gets lower every day because I keep putting more time into it. First of all, I went to the Library of Congress and I asked them, you know, do you guys want to do this film? And they said, well, no, it's not really a priority of ours. And uh, we can't really do it. And, and and that's not a slam against Library of Congress. They just plain couldn't do it. Uh, they have a full schedule, and they have to prioritize. It's all a triage. You know, this is important. This is not important. Uh, and that one was considered not really important. And here you're looking at the 35 millimeter and saying, well, if this isn't done in the next couple of months, then we're not going to do it at all, and because it it's really it's really rotting in front of your face. So that's that was a that was a factor. The next factor was that uh, 2016 was um, the 100th anniversary of James Whitcomb Riley's death, so that was an important thing. And also, it was the 200th anniversary of in Indiana as a state, and that meant that I could get funding for this from some of the uh, the local. Uh, venues saying, okay, well, this is a this is a an Indiana bicentennial project, and so that made it doubly important to do this now. First of all, it was rotting, and second of all, I could get funding for it, and those are those are both really key things. So I went to Library of Congress and said, can we do this? And they said, oh yeah, I mean, if you're going to do a preservation project and we don't have to, that's wonderful. We're excited about that. So they let me have the material, and uh, I just uh, I just had at it. And it's interesting because you don't think of Indiana as having a big place in film history, but you're actually working on other Indiana projects, including some basketball films. Well, if you've ever seen the movie Hoosiers, uh, which was a big hit in the 80s, uh, Hoosiers is about a little tiny town that has a basketball team, which is the, the little team that could and they managed to defeat the largest uh, high school in the, in the state and become the state basketball champions. And that's actually based on a true story, and that was Milan High School, which is a little tiny town, and it still is a little tiny town. And they, um, they came to me uh, a couple years ago, and they said, you know, we have the original... 1954 game films of of uh, High School versus Muncie, which which was the the challenger there. And I said, well, that's really cool. And they said, well, they they smell they smell really bad. And I said, okay. They said, yeah, they've been in a, a locker for about 60 years. Um, and I had to put them in a shoebox and and seal it up because they smelled so bad. And I thought, oh no. Because this is the absolute worst way you can store a film. And they said, well, can you save these? And, uh, well, that wasn't really one of my priorities at the time, but this is a legendary game. It's a legendary thing in Indiana. It's, it's 
super important. And so I did some research on it, tried to find out, well, who had material on it, and it turned out that this was the best material that existed. And they didn't have good copies of it anywhere, and so this this stuff was was really, again, rotting in front of my face. And so I said, well, we got to do this. I got a grant from National Film Preservation Foundation. And again, I had to put together, somebody had a VHS copy of it, which they'd thrown away the print of, and it had about 30 seconds of footage at the beginning of the, the film that was missing in the Milan print. So I restored all that. I cleaned up everything. I had to study it. And then the... Um, uh, the the semi championship game, which was against Terre Haute, was preserved too, and that was the only copy of it. Period. Nobody had that, so so they had the semifinal and the final game, and that one was so crinkly and terrible that uh, uh, they had to buy a new special gate for shrunken film at the at the lab where I had all the scans. So it was a it was a real challenge. That took about six months just for that one print. We're, we're making a new negative for the championship game. That was funded by NFPF, and uh, that's being done now at Metropolis Labs. And uh, I've got that all finished. And then the Terre Haute game, which is the semifinal, uh, I'm just finishing putting that on a Blu-ray, and all the Kickstarter uh, people are going to get a Blu-ray or a DVD copy of that. But I try not to be the Indiana guy, but... Um, being in Indiana, I do, I do get money from people saying, "Hey, do you have Indiana history here?" Um, so one of the things that I, I do a lot of is um, uh, Gene Stratton Porter films. Gene Stratton Porter was an author from uh, uh, Geneva, Indiana, and uh, she was also a pioneering film producer and did a lot of films out in Hollywood. And she was killed in a streetcar accident in the mid 20s so it was cut her career unfortunately very short so i do a lot of those shows I, I i preserve and find a lot of those prints if i can if i can do it we're working on um uh jeff kraus has a print of uh, little mickey groban which we found in france and that was made by gene stratton porter's company for the film booking offices and if i can get a, a major film studio to promise not to sue me for a film that they haven't had for 90 years, then maybe we'll let it out. Uh, but I'm not sure because it's it's been kind of a contest for a while. And th what's amazing about that is that uh, the star of this film, Lassie Lou Ahern, is alive. We could record a commentary for it. So how many times do you know that that the star of a silent film can actually record a commentary for it. It just never happens. Thanks to my guests, Joe Aransky, Eric Grayson, and to The Radler, Chicago's best German restaurant and Brauhaus. Music is by Kevin McLeod. So this is usually where I tell you how to buy the thing we've been talking about, but there's not much of Colleen Moore's work available on home video. You can get Little Orphan Tanny directly from Eric Grayson. I'll have the link in the show post at nitrateville.com for that. And he says it'll be available from Amazon soon as well. Warner Archive put out Why Be Good, and I'll have a link in the show post to a good quality copy of Ella Cinders. And I'm not sure what the next show will be, but I'm working my way through a stack of books, mostly about comedy, so that seems a safe bet. 
Be sure to subscribe at iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher, and come chat with us at nitrateville.com. Thanks. <laughs>